Welcome to the August 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and this month we're going to explore how understanding the past of your family tree might just be able to help with the problems of life today. And we'll do that with self-proclaimed genia therapist, Helen Parker Drabble. Then, as always, Diane Southard's going to be here for another DNA Deconstructed segment. Uh, Devin Noel Lee from Family History Fanatics is here to talk about genealogy and family history on YouTube.com, which is on our list of best websites for genealogy. And Amanda Epperson, the e-learning producer for Family Tree University, will tell us about the online genealogy courses that we have to look forward to coming this fall. But first, let's start off, as always, with some tree talk. And we'll do that with social media editor, Rachel Fountain. Where is the strangest place that you have found an ancestor? Family Tree Magazine social media editor, Rachel Fountain, was curious about this after her own unique experience. And she went out to social media to find out what you had to say about it. And she's here to tell us all about it. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. So you went out and asked this question, but I know you told me before we kind of got started today that this actually came about because of an unusual find that you made in a very unusual place. Tell us about that. Yeah, it, it was kind of funny. So the other week, um, I was just sorting through some paperwork. My husband and I had recently moved. And so we were just going through all of our files and getting rid of junk and stuff that we didn't need anymore. And I was going through a pile, a big pile of like automotive documents. So like receipts from oil changes and stuff like that. And all of a sudden I come upon my maternal grandmother's death certificate, just mixed in there. No reason at all. I know it was so strange. Um, So that kind of got me thinking about, you know, all the weird inexplicable inexplicable places that we find genealogy records. So I I went to social, I went on Facebook and Twitter, and I posted the question, where is the strangest place you found a genealogy record? And we got lots of responses on both Facebook and Twitter. People responded with everything from, you know, the floor of an old house that was scheduled to be raised, (laughs) um, courthouse attics, and random shoe boxes. Um, Our Facebook follower, Pam, said that she found a letter from a distant cousin on her mom's side, and she said it was found in a shoebox full of photos um, that otherwise had nothing to do with her mom. And that kind of reminded me of my own experience where, you know, here's this really valuable document, and it's mixed in with stuff that is absolutely unrelated. So those were fun to read. In some ways, it's a little uh, scary because you think, oh, maybe that thing I'm looking for is in some random place I'll never come across. But it's kind of nice to know that things can resurface, isn't it? Yeah, it it is a little unnerving. And there's a little part of my brain that wants to just go through every piece of paper in the house and see see what's there. Yes, clean out all the files, right? Yeah. I think I found something once. um, It was when I took the back off a frame, I don't know if the glass had broken, but I took it off and there was a letter that was between, you know, the cardboard backing and the picture 
that I didn't know was there. So, you know, you never know. Yes. So folks can follow the Family Tree Magazine over at Facebook and on Twitter to participate in these very interesting questions that you pose each month. And um, also, each month, you often share with us some of the favorite social media accounts that you're following. Who are you looking at these days? My recommendation this month um, for any Twitter users out there is to follow Melissa Barker. She's a genealogist and a certified archives manager over in Houston County, Tennessee. And her, um, you can find her on Twitter at TNArchivist. For anyone who's interested in archiving and preservation, her feed is definitely worth a follow. Um, she shares cool stories, good tips, um, upcoming events, just about you know anything related to preservation. So, you know, when you find that unexpected document or photo or letter and want to know how to preserve it and make sure that it's intact for generations to come, I would definitely give her a follow and check out her advice. She is located in Tennessee, but her uh, tips and advice certainly apply to everybody. I've had her on my Genealogy Gems podcast several times. And in fact, I'm thinking about it in on my website, um, in my topics, you can pick Archive Lady. And she's written some wonderful in-depth preservation articles, you know, things about letters and things. So uh, following her on a daily basis, she keeps up to date on everything that's going on. So uh, yeah, we'll have, we'll put her Twitter handle in our show notes for this episode. And uh, along with, of course, links to all of the Family Tree Magazine social media platforms. Stay in touch with us and be ready to answer some of Rachel's upcoming intriguing questions. (laughs) Always fun to talk to you. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thanks, Lisa. It's probably pretty hard to find a family tree that isn't touched by anxiety, addiction, or depression. And they are the challenges of not just modern life, but really just life throughout history. And author Helen Parker Drabble has been thinking about how these conditions not only touch our own lives, but also how they may have shaped the lives of our ancestors. Helen is a former counselor turned what she calls genius therapist. And her mission is to share historical and current theories of mental health, psychology, and neuroscience to help people gain a better understanding of their ancestors for the benefit of present and future generations. And she's writing about that in her new book, A Victorian's Inheritance. And she's here today with me on the podcast. Welcome to the show, Helen. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm really interested to hear where the term genotherapist came from. Did you coin this or was this a thing before you started writing your book? I don't think it is a thing. Um, I think I saw it in a a blog article a few years ago. um, And I, I have credited that person on my website. I can't bring his name to mind, but he mentioned that he thought he had been doing almost genotherapy. But it's it's the word I feel that best reflects what I'm aiming to do. So it combines both of my great passions. As you say, I'm a counsellor by profession, but I'm a genealogist and family historian by experience. And in your book, you're writing about the family history research that you've been doing. I'm guessing I can tell from looking at the book that you've run into some of these uh, situations 
throughout history. When did you start to kind of see threads or the idea that some of these conditions are being kind of carried forward? Actually, quite late in my research, my psychological curiosity and that part of me hadn't really connected with my genealogy. Um, but I, I was trying to to really get a sense of who my grandfather was. And I remember sitting, looking at the computer, thinking, who are you? Who do I think you were? That's what I wanted to capture. Yeah, I noticed at the beginning of your book, you have a quote. It says, uh, as soon as we die, we enter into fiction. Once we cannot speak for ourselves, it's up to others to interpret us. And, and that's a tricky thing, isn't it? Trying to interpret them. And yet, we, we do learn an awful lot about them just through our research. So I imagine that you do start to see common threads, you can start to draw perhaps some hy- hypothetical conclusions, at least about what their life was like, and maybe the impact that it is having on these uh, generations coming forward. Absolutely. I think when I started looking at my grandfather, from the point of view of his childhood, and what he had inherited from the generations that came before him, that's when, as you say, that thread started to to appear. I I saw the, the, the trauma, the loss, the catastrophic loss. I can't imagine living through what my great grandmother experienced. She lost her mother at age four. By the time she was sick, many of her siblings had died. She then lost her firstborn and Anne became an alcoholic. I don't know what caused her to misuse alcohol, but as you say, by looking at the loss, looking at what we know now about how people uh, react to trauma, and how our mental health is affected by grief, and imagining her situation where there was nowhere to go, there was no help, and she had to just get through as best she could. Exactly. As you researched coming, well, we we often obviously start with ourselves when we go back in time, but you're with your your grandmother, your great-grandmother, your seeing situations, and and then you probably, I imagine, do some reverse genealogy where you start coming forward again. What are some of the, the trends? What are some of the things? And did you see healing occurring throughout those generations after her? I'd like to say that I did see healing. People were certainly more functional. The, the alcoholism wasn't passed through the family, but I believe that depression was. My mother and her cousins uh, certainly experienced depression, uh, although it wasn't much talked about even from my late mother's point of view. And I'm sad to say that that my children have also experienced anxiety uh, and depression. But before we feel too doom-laden, I think the book and what I'm saying is actually a story of hope because a lot of us now are in a situation where we can reflect, we can look at the way we live, we 
we probably do have enough money to, you know, to feed ourselves, put a roof over our head and a fire in the grate, as they used to say, and give some thought to how we can not only deepen our understanding of our ancestors, but use that understanding to think of ourselves and those that come after us. So we have an opportunity, which our ancestors didn't, and we can pass on a much healthier legacy through what we uncover. You know, that really makes me think of, of two things. And the first one is when you think about the fire and the grate, um, I know for myself, as I look at some of the hardships and the the way they w- they did without <laughs> in ways that we never have to today, what it fosters in me is a real um, attitude of gratitude, gratitude for what I have, gratitude that even when things are hard now, wow, it could have been a whole lot harder. And um, I think uh, that can be a really, it certainly has had a positive impact on me. Do you find that um, people benefit in that way from learning about their ancestors, that it can put our own hardships in a different perspective? Absolutely. Family history can be a powerful antidote against adverse life experiences. It builds resistance. All of us have ancestors who overcame disaster and survived tough times. And learning their stories helps us to see that we too can survive. It shows that we can develop an understanding of why people behave as they do and promote self-awareness and encourage families to break cycles of abuse or misery. By looking at the past, we can discover that we're actually more resilient than we thought. Our forebears survived war, poverty, trauma, and pandemics. So can we. We also have people in our families, sometimes it's our own parents, or it's our grandparents, where we had falling outs, we have severe, you know, challenges with them, or there was abuse in a family. Um, Do you find that learning more about family history can foster empathy because I know in research in my own family that when you see where a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent came from, it can really change how you perceive or your memories of what they were like when perhaps you were young. Uh, I think of my grandfather who was just so gruff and so just not a, not a loving, you know, kind of teddy bear kind of grandpa at all. But once I dug into his history and his parents' history, I thought it was amazing that he was standing and providing for his family every day the way he did. I really changed my perspective on him. What are your thoughts on that? I think we had perhaps grandfathers that shared some similarities. Mine was, was quiet and shy and did appear quite gruff. But seeing what he had lived through... And the psychological inheritance that he took on board did give me, as you said earlier, a sense of gratitude and a sense that, you know, he had done everything that he could and that he'd passed the baton on to the next generation. And each succeeding generation tries to improve things for them and the families, uh, for all of us, um, as it goes down through the years. So we try to to improve things, I think. 
but you mentioned abuse and we are much more aware of incredible traumas that people can suffer whether it's you know war or or um, sexual or uh, emotional abuse or attachment disorder all of these things can lead um, devastating psychological inheritance but what the science shows us what neuroscience shows us is that we can rewire our brains and we can live a much better life going forward. We had thought that the brain wasn't very malleable once we'd left childhood. We now know it's changing right up to the very last moments of our lives. And that gives me great hope. I can completely agree with that. And I I think also, you know, kind of what you're describing is it that gaining that understanding, we don't necessarily condone what somebody did. But uh, for someone's own well-being and, and healing, they might be able to find a place of forgiveness just out of seeing where that person had come from, who perhaps uh, was unkind or, or abused somebody. Um, at least it may be a way, a tool, I would imagine, to help folks let go so it doesn't continue destruction in their own lives. In fact, you talk about, uh, on your website, you said that a Victorian's inheritance, which of course is the, the book that we're talking about here, can help people find answers. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what kind of answers are you thinking that you're hoping that your audience will get from the book? So by talking about my grandfather and his psychological inheritance, and the experiences that formed him and the attachments that he had with his family, I'm hoping that the reader will be able to think about their ancestors, the lives that they had, and ask those questions of what made them, what made your granny, your grandmother, um, your great-grandparents, the people that they were, And what can we do to understand them? Hope the answers they'll find come from the questions that they ask themselves while reading A Victorian's Inheritance. I'm talking about my grandfather, but these experiences are very common to a lot of families. Not only are the experiences common, but the answers that we might draw are going to be quite similar wherever we are in the world because people are people. So answers about what made somebody distant and not the open, loving grandparent that we would have wished might have its roots in attachment, how that ancestor connected with their first caretakers in perhaps very difficult circumstances. Those kinds of thoughts can lead us to the answer, who do I think you were? Exactly. Now, I know over uh, at your website, Helen Parker Drabble, it's D-R-A-B-B-L-E dot com, you've got the book, uh, A Victorian's Inheritance. Uh, what other ways can people interact with you? And what will they learn over at your website? Thank you, Lisa. Yes, people can find me at my website, uh, type in A Victorian's Inheritance in your favorite search engine, and that should uh, show my website to you. I know my name is a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, 
you will be able to find more my contact details on the website, along with articles about how you might find looking at psychological inheritance in your family, what kinds of records you might be looking for to give you those clues that there may be something of a psychological inheritance going on within your family. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and I so appreciate you joining me here on the podcast to explore it. And again, the book is A Victorian's Inheritance by Helen Parker Drabble. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you, Lisa. In her recent online article, DNA Q&A, DNA Testing for Kids for Genealogy, Diane Southard answers the question, should I have my children and or my grandchildren DNA tested? And she's here to share that answer now. Welcome back to the podcast, Diane. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you for this question. It's one I, I get often. I bet. And I, I kind of see it as a two-parter, really. There's this question around, you know, what's the value, if, if there is a value of testing your own kids and your grandkids, if you've already DNA tested yourself, but then there's also the question of just kind of the, the moral questions around testing somebody before they're an adult. So let's tackle them kind of in two parts. First of all, what's the value in testing your kids or your grandkids, particularly if you've already done your own DNA testing? Great. Excellent question. Great way to start out. So the benefit of testing a so, so my rule of thumb essentially for testing is that anyone who's had both of their parents tested does not need to be tested themselves. So for example, I've had both of my parents tested. And so I am genetically irrelevant when it comes <laughs> no. to family history. I know it's a sad thing to say, but as far as research and, and using DNA for a purpose to find your ancestors, I am completely irrelevant. I never look at my own DNA when I'm trying to solve a family mystery when I have my parents tested because I, I'm actually irrelevant. So there's but, no chance of having any DNA that one or the other does not have. Exactly. That okay. is biologically impossible. So you won't have any new matches, any different matches. And if you do, because people have done some extensive studies of the matches of themselves and their parents, like, wait, 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 I do have matches my parents don't have. And then I'm like, well, then those are not real matches. And those are artifacts of the testing, which is a totally different topic. But oh. essentially, it's completely impossible for you to have a match that one of your parents does not have. Unless you have the question that, oh, the parent that I thought was my biological parent is not actually my biological parent. Exactly. And, and that's pretty obvious when you test as well, because your parent doesn't even show up on your match list. <laughs> so all of those things are answered pretty quickly. I mean, as far as if this parent is or isn't your parent. But there is value, I think, for each person to take a DNA test for themselves, especially when we're talking about the, the desire that most of us have to involve our younger generations in this passion of family history. And this is a fight that so many of us are fighting. We want our children and grandchildren to love what we love and to be involved and to see the value in family history documentation. And I do think that DNA is a big way you can draw these people in because then they look for themselves at their own DNA results. They can see their own ethnicity. They can see their own DNA matches and it becomes personal. And that is often just the hook that you need to get that family member interested in the research that you're doing. 
I imagine too, there's also in a sense, the ownership of the results um, in a family where if your parents have tested and you have not tested and you think, okay, well, great, I've got this. But really, they own those results. If for some reason, God forbid, there was a terrible rift in the family and you were not connected anymore, you wouldn't have access. So in a sense, there's an ownership piece. Absolutely. And and yeah, to your point that the the ownership of it is an essential part in continuing the work, right? This has to be something that they are doing and not something just their parents did. And, and I think there is value. There's all kinds of fun scientific value in comparing results between yourself and your parents and grandparents and your siblings and cousins. And there's lots of fun science you can do sure. to, to understand better family inheritance. Um, there's often rivalries within siblings who has the most <laughs> Italian or whatever, you know, it can be a really fun way to engage your family in this process. So you would definitely learn what portions you got from your mom and what you got from your dad and that there it might not be exactly 50-50, correct? Well, so your parents are almost always exactly 50-50. Oh, okay. But you get back to your grandparents and it's not. Right. You would think it would be 25-25-25-25, but it's not. And so then it starts to get really interesting. Oh, I got more from grandpa Hazelwood and you got more from grandma Dean. And, you know, like it can, like I said, it can get really fun to start tracking um, inheritance of traits. You can track just centimorgans, just amount of DNA and kinds of DNA and where it is on this, on the chromosomes. I mean, there's endless possibilities for fun and excitement and adventure and connection in testing multiple family members. But bottom line, if you want to find an ancestor, you only need to test the parents. You don't need to test the children. Okay, great. So uh, that kind of brings us to our second question, which is around if we have um, adult kids, it's not really a question. You can talk to them about it and they can make their decision. If you have kids or grandkids who are under the age of 18, uh, what kind of advice or guidance do you give uh, your the folks that you work with? Right. Well, I think it's really important that we think about this more than casually, because your DNA test results can tell you a lot of really important things about your family. They can tell you things about your health, should you choose to pursue that that mm-hmm. branch of the testing as well. And so this is not something to be taken lightly. This is something that that you need to really consider and think about and, and understand the ramifications. Um, for example, if you want to test your grandchild, then you're testing not just your family's DNA, but you're testing all of that child's DNA, which means you've gathered in two other people. So your child's spouse is is obviously like intricately involved in this process. And you're going to learn things about their family that you might not expect. And that's, to me, the biggest caution I want to, to give you is, especially with grandchildren, you are, you are testing a totally unrelated, biologically unrelated branch of, of the family that you don't know anything about. And you could potentially uncover hurtful, um, you know, disconnecting kinds of information about their family. You could discover that, that your grandchild's father, his, his dad isn't his dad. Right. And, and, and that's really hard to deal with. And that's something that adults 
are really struggling with. And so then you're left with this, you know, quandary, what do I do now? Do I tell my son-in-law that I don't think his dad's his dad based on his DNA test results? Like there's a lot that can come out of this. So just be really careful and really aware of what you can learn using these kinds of tests. Is it even legal to test, let's say, a grandchild without the consent of the parent? Or can the child give a consent? Right. So you have to be 18 to give consent. And if if yes. not, then you do have to, to have the, the consent of the legal guardian. So good point. Yeah. If you're going to test a grandchild, you have to have the permission of the parents in order to perform the test. The company does ask you when you're filling out the paperwork, they're saying, is this you? And then you're saying, no, this isn't me. And then they're taking you down this path to help them verify that you've done all the right things to make sure that you have the consent of the person that you're filling out the form for. Right. So even with the enthusiasm to find the genealogy, we want to make sure we're following the rules and uh, respecting everybody involved. I imagine even for, you know, there people talk a lot about all the different, you know, ramifications of testing in general. And um, a child under 18 may not fully comprehend all of the things they're agreeing to, in a sense. So I think that's very, very wise indeed. Any other advice in this arena or things for uh, folks to consider as they consider testing the kids in their family? Yeah, I think one of the best things you can do is is show them your results, right? And right. people are interested in DNA. They, yes. they get excited. <laughs> they get fascinated, even and maybe even especially children, as incorporate your DNA results into these stories you want to tell of your ancestors. Help them see that this image that they're seeing on this computer screen that represents this map of their heritage, that there's pieces of DNA in them that connect them to these places. And these are the faces, these people in your family tree that connect them to these places. And isn't this amazing that we know about this ancestor who traveled from these lands? And it just, it helps to put a physical aspect to something that's hard to understand a concept of an ancestor is a hard thing to really grasp. But when you put it in physical terms and tell them that these people are a part of them, it can make a huge impact. Yeah, makes it more tangible. Definitely. Point. Well, terrific. For those of you listening, if you'd like to check out Diane's DNA Q&A, DNA testing for kids for genealogy, we'll have a link in the show notes for this August 2021 episode. As always, thank you so much, Diane. Always great to talk with you. We will talk to you next month. Sounds great, Lisa. Bye-bye. Would it surprise you to hear that YouTube is one of the best websites for genealogy? Well, it makes it onto our best websites list because it has so much to offer. And Devin Noel Lee of the Family History Fanatics YouTube channel is here on the podcast to tell you why that is and some of the best channels to be watching. Welcome to the show, Devin. Howdy, so glad to be here. It's great to have you here. Is this your first time? I can't remember now. I don't think it probably is. For Family Tree Magazine, yes, but not with you. Exactly, exactly. We're old friends. And it's wonderful to have you here. And I got to start off by congratulating you because you've reached a huge milestone for YouTube in general, but particularly for genealogy YouTube websites Mm -hmm. and channels. And that is you've hit the 50,000 mark for subscribers. Wow. How does that feel? 
Um, I'm blessing and smiling from uh, ear to ear. I'm so thrilled and honored that people have found value on our channel. And now the next step is to reach 100,000 subscribers. And that gets you a silver play button. And that puts you into the upper echelon of YouTube channel. So we're working hard trying to bring value to everyone. And I can't thank everyone enough for all the support, including you. You've been a mentor since I met you in Austin, Texas in 2015 on a very, very rainy day. (laughs) (laughs) A little unusual for Austin too, but um, very true. (laughs) It's been been awfully fun. And we did Roots Tech together. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that it's such a collaborative environment on YouTube, just like it is in genealogy, which is wonderful. And I wanted to talk a little bit and introduce people because I think a lot of people finally made their way onto YouTube this last year. But genealogists have been a little bit slow to that game. And I know I've been talking about and writing in my book about using YouTube to find family history content, because there is a lot of family history content. But there's also a lot of just really good genealogy channels just to learn more about doing genealogy. Do you have some favorites that you can share with us, perhaps from our best genealogy websites list? Absolutely. Um, Some the ones for the best genealogy YouTube channels, I'm going to highlight two and one that should be an honorable mention. Um, So of course, family history fanatics. <laughs> of course, and you so, are on the list for sure. I, I am. Um, but actually, let me make it two, three plus an honorable mention. I want to praise your channel. Your channel is very informative and engaging, and it's been around for quite a while. There's a lot for people to go, and I can't say how much I love the coffee time or tea time with you. That's a really fun experience. Connie Knox, um, of the genealogy TV channel. She does a lot of um, educational training videos. I sense that she does a lot more ancestry, like how to use ancestry. Mm-hmm. And that's really good because I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a family his, family search fangirl and I use ancestry second. And Connie is an ancestry first, family search second. And so I think you can learn that we complement each other and then you can find what you like the best. Um, and then my honorable mention is one about DNA. It's the DNA family tree with Larry Jones. And I really like how he helps. His main focus is to help adoptees understand how to do DNA research, but he has a lot of other content there. So um, those are some of my favorites. And then the, of course, there's the standbys of ancestry.com. Krista Cowan is the queen of doing um YouTube videos. She's been around for a very long time, very informative, educational ones. You have Family Search, but most particularly the BYU Family History Channel, teaching you how to do Family Search. So I went more than three, but there's enough to get started. Yeah, absolutely. And you're really describing uh, channels all of us are out there teaching. And education is really so much more on demand than it used to be, which I think is really cool. And I'd I'd love to have you share with people, maybe some viewing tips, how to get the most out of because you've you've named a lot. I know on on my channel, I've got hundreds and hundreds of videos you do too. (laughs) How does how do you recommend a person get the most from it and kind of navigate their way? 
Okay, so um, you get very familiar with um, the search bar. And if you don't know how to use the search bar, that is when you go to the genealogy Google book that you provide. But same strategies as searching Google the website you use on Google YouTube. Um, Starts typing in U.S. tax records, and you're going to find videos on how to search U.S. tax records. If you're interested in learning how to use Find My Past, particularly English parish records for those of us who have English ancestors, you're going to have videos on that. Just type in Find My Past and the type of collection you're using. So you type in collections you're looking for. You type in websites plus collections. You can also type in beginning genealogy tips or advanced genealogy tips. So think in terms of some key areas you're trying to look for. Also check out genetic genealogy. Almost all the DNA videos are going to be tagged with genetic genealogy in the title or the description. You can also put in the test ancestry DNA test, but I have to caution you when you just do the test and nothing specific like through lines or my heritage theory of family relativities, you're going to get a lot of these videos where people go, oh, my reaction to my DNA test results. (laughs) And while they're fun, they get overdone. You really want to learn how to do uh, DNA research. And so you want to put in something like ancestry through lines, jet match one to many tool and things like that. So always put like the test plus what you're trying, the tool you're trying to use. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, because of artificial intelligence, YouTube and Google understand so much more the conversational things. So I like to put in how to, because most of those look at my reaction, you know, aren't talking (laughs) about how to I I so agree. And you're the one you kind of showed me about how to put uh, the hashtags in our video descriptions. And I think people miss those video descriptions. Sometimes that can be a great way that once you find a great video to lead you to another video you want to watch, right? Those were going to be my next steps. The first step is getting into YouTube using search. And then once you get to a video that you like, yes, make sure you pay particular attention to the description box. So you'll see the title of the video. You'll see the user that created that video. But then you'll see a little description and this ability to expand more. Now, above the title is those hashtags you talked about, hashtag genealogy, hashtag genetic genealogy, hashtag writing family history. If you click on those, then YouTube will filter to videos that um, have those type of um, topics in mind. So that's a, a filtering system there. You'll also see in the description, watch next for a lot of videos. Yeah. I know that I do this a lot. So if you come on to how to use ancestry American Revolution pension files, if you click on the description, it'll be watch next. I have another video idea for you. When you're watching a video, pay attention to these little pop-up screens. There'll be a little circle with an eye in it, and then it will be a little tag for a video that the creator says, hey, you should probably watch this next. Or I mentioned this video and here's the link to it. So you can find those additional related videos through the pop-up screen, through the description. Make sure you always watch to the end because the content creator will tell you, if you really like this video, check out this one. Um, And then if that's not enough, 
pay attention to the videos that are surrounding uh, the view screen. So on mobile, it's going to be uh, below your video. And on desktop, it'll be on some of the sidebars. And um, YouTube will try to recommend additional videos related to the topic that you're looking at. So if you're on a Google image search video with you, then you'll look on the side and you'll either see another video that you've created, that Lisa's created for those in the audience, um, or you'll see one that I've created, or you'll see some that other people have created. So there's, once you get in to the a specific topic, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole. So that's how you yeah. find more content. Those are great, great ideas. And of course, I always think that it's when you find a trusted voice, somebody exactly. that you like the way they teach, you think they know what they're talking about, you click the subscribe button and you can follow them that way too. Absolutely. Before I let you go, I'd love mm -hmm. to have you uh, mention a good history web uh, channel because I know that there are several really good channels out there. And of course, understanding the historical context of our family helps us as genealogists. Do you have any favorites? I do. I have one for adults and one for children. So my favorite one for children is actually on the list and it's Crash Course History. And let me refine this to older children. So middle school to adults, because the guy's talks very, very quickly, <laughs> but there is a tool on YouTube in the little settings gear icon um, on the video. You can actually slow it down if you need yeah. to. So do a Google search, how to slow down the speed of a video, and you'll learn how to slow people down who talk too fast. Um, so I really like that for my teenagers. Extra history is one for young children. And then for adults, I, I have to say, I love the History Channel. They just have so much good content there. <laughs> right. Gosh, lots to choose from. Good news is we're going to have links to the list on the Family Tree Magazine website, as well as some of the favorites that Devin has mentioned here. And it's always great talking to you. I could talk YouTube all day with you, but uh, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast, Debbie. Absolutely. It. And let me just say, go kick up your feet, grab some popcorn and a notebook and enjoy YouTube and the genealogy training there. Well, believe it or not, we're already coming to the end of the August 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, but... We're not done yet because we are going to stop by the editor's desk. And today, that desk is the desk of Amanda Epperson. She's the Family Tree University Dean, and she's going to tell us about some of the exciting new upcoming courses coming up. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Lisa. How are you today? We're doing great. We've had a lot of fun in this episode. Uh, tons of learning going on, but I know that tons of learning goes on over at the university. So I'd love to have you share with us what are some of the courses coming up in the next couple of months? Um, so we have um, four great courses coming up in September. Um, the first, which starts on the 7th, so just after Labor Day, is Gina Philibert Ortega will be moderating Organize Your Genealogy Research. And this course is designed to help get you your genealogy research sorted out. So it's not in five different folders and on your computer and on your desktop and in your cabinets. Um, so it will help you set goals for your research, share methods for organizing all your paper and digital files and strategies for keeping track of your research. So you know which questions you're asking and which documents to look at for each of those questions. Um, then next, on the 13th, begins exploring German genealogy um, with Sean Kessler, which will help you um, pinpoint your ancestors' town or village of origin 
and provide details for using German records. Then the third course in September, starting on the 20th, is using U.S. Vital Records with Sonny Morton. And this course walks you through how to find and use birth, death, and marriage records from the United States. And then finally, um, beginning on the 27th, we'll end September with um, source citations for successful genealogy with Shannon Combs Bennett. Source citations scare a lot of people. <laughs> um, so hopefully <laughs> this course will help you become more familiar with them and learn there's a range of ways to do citations from very simple I found this fact in this book um, to making proper um, citations that you can use for publications. Gosh, those all sound great. I mean, they're all really essential courses. Everybody benefits from organization. And uh, I, I think probably German heritage is one of the most common that we find here in the U.S. Vital records, source citations. Gosh, you have it all. Okay. So we will have a link in the show notes for this episode so that all of you listening can find the course that fits your needs and uh, click through and join us over at the Family Tree University. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Amanda, for helping us wrap up this episode. Thanks, Lisa. I'm so glad you joined me for this August 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Now, while you're still here listening to the podcast, give it a positive rating here in your podcast app. That will keep us coming back every month, filling your ears with strategies and information to help you be even more successful climbing your family tree. And then be sure to check out the show notes. You'll find those at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you'll find the Genealogy Gems podcast and my weekly YouTube video show, Elevenses with Lisa. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.